If you would turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, I'm going to read our text. This is part two to the forgotten war, the forgotten war that we deal with in our lives every day. James writes, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That is God's word. James is talking here about two kinds of wisdom. Basically, two different, different repositories, two different storehouses that we can go to. We're kind of brought to a crossroads in this passage. You can either be leaning upon the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of unspiritual, fleshly people, or even the wisdom of demonic thinking, or... You can lean on God's wisdom that's found in heaven. And really what we're talking about here in this text is spiritual warfare. We battle not against flesh and blood, but powers in the unseen world and demonic influences that try to get inside the believer's thinking and make them fall apart. Spiritual warfare sometimes is easier to detect than other times. One time, you may have heard me tell you this before, one time I encountered a person in California at a Christian college, and I had met him all the way across the lower 48 in Virginia at the college I was attending. As an undergraduate student, I hosted this guy. He was checking out my college, and he was sort of around me and me around him, and we talked quite a bit. Then years later, he was at the master's college in California, and he walked out down the sidewalk, and I saw him, and we sort of recognized each other and started talking, but something was very strange about him as he was fidgeting with his hands and putting his hands in his pockets and kind of clicking his fingernails like this, and then all of a sudden he began to talk to himself or seemingly talk to a spirit where he was saying, should I, should I tell him? Should I tell him or, or not? And sort of began to tell me that he was believing himself to be the God, God the Father incarnate, the fourth member of the Godhead. Pretty strange, pretty strange. What do you do with a guy like that? Well, I just proceeded to treat him as an unbeliever and give him the gospel and try to get to his heart. Really what was going on inside was the same sin that's listed here in our verses, pride, selfish ambition, You know, a more subtle version of spiritual warfare maybe happened this week when I was down in Soldotna. I took a couple of my kids, Logan and Emmy, fishing um, down to Johnson Lake at 
I think I'm going to get this right, Kasilov, and I was down there and sort of circling uh, the gravel road around the lake to go fishing, and this person, this dude, was walking down the road sort of in dark attire, and all of a sudden he went into a full rage fit over me as I'm driving by at, you know, a mere 10 miles an hour and begins to swear at me and curse me for going over the five mile an hour speed limit. So I just kept on driving, you know, I didn't stop. But I thought to myself, you know, this is kind of like a warfare moment. I could either appeal in my heart to that which is worldly, fleshly, or even demonic in a prideful response, even if I stay in the car, (laughs) or I could appeal to heaven's wisdom, which is described here in these verses before us. That's how warfare works. There is a strong moral dimension to warfare. Who will you identify with? The demons or God? Who God has made you to be in Christ? And James brings us to this crossroads. He's talking about warfare wisdom that originates from two different sources. And just by way of review, verse 15 The first source is the world, the flesh, and the devil, or earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. Worldly wisdom is described in verse 14 as that which is made up of being bitter and jealous and having a selfish ambition. It's the opposite of what we see in verse 13, which is where James says, look, let leaders in the church show themselves to be the real thing by their gentle godly conduct that's filled with the meekness of wisdom that's the opposite of this kind of worldly wisdom that's filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition Paul took on people that were his enemies they were he called enemies of the cross Philippians 3 and he said that they were people whose glory was their shame, and they were filled in their mindsets with earthly things. To be earthly means to be rooted in the earth. It means to think like the world thinks. And there's so many temptation venues for our minds to be soaked with the world's wisdom, with philosophies. You don't even know that you're being sort of entertained by worldly philosophies and thinking about getting everything you can in life, about achieving goals in this life and that being the make or break for who you are in terms of how you think of yourself. And that's always going after you. And I'm telling you, as you drill down from the earthly, you're drilling down into the unspiritual mindset, which is the idea of you acting as if you're not even a believer. It's where in verse 14 it says, jealousy and selfish ambition is in your hearts. Do you see that phrase in verse 14? It's where the world gets inside you, even though you're a believer. And you start to act like a naturally minded person, or a person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit at all. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says, the natural minded person does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. It's the same word here. And that's what James is confronting. So he's drilling down saying, look, if you're relying on the world system of thinking, then you're worldly and then unspiritual. And then you're even thinking like the demons, demon thinking. James chapter 2 verse 19 says, even the demons believe and shudder. They're not believing and saving faith, but it's a window into the demonic realm that's shuddering over the truths of the gospel. 
the condemnation that's on their head. And then just to sort of bracket this demon section, James 4 verse 7 says that we're supposed to submit ourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from us. So there's sort of a window shade up here that James is giving to us that the demons and the devils are real and they're influencing our thinking. And the way that they are attacking us is with the sins of jealousy. Look at verse 16 and selfish ambition. What James doesn't do is he doesn't shift gears when he starts talking about the demons. He doesn't say, well, you know, avoid becoming Wiccan. Avoid becoming, you know, someone who's part of white witchcraft. Avoid the black dark arts, you know, of of the occult. I mean, that's definitely warned against in scripture and that's definitely demonic. The New Age movement, being a person who, who is sold out on Mother Earth to the expense of forgetting all about God, who is the true Lord and creator of all things, that's all demonic. But really what James addresses here is categorically basic sins in our hearts, jealousy and being filled with self, being filled with, I'm number one. I want to be the cult. I want there to be a cult of my own personality. That's demonic thinking. That's actually the same sin that Satan himself first fell in, right? He's up in heaven. He's one of the premier angels of God, worshiping God. And then in Isaiah chapter 14, it says that Satan said, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. And Satan was ultimately condemned by his own pride and selfish ambition. Nothing wrong with being zealous. We're called to be zealous for God. We're called to be zealous for his glory, consumed with that. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And Jesus, when he was here on earth and saw the money changers in the temple, he got pretty zealous. He got pretty incensed. There's nothing wrong with having a righteous indignation. In fact, if you're not angry about things for God's glory, then there could be something off in your spiritual life. Jesus was, as the apostles saw him clean the temple out with a whip, they said, you know, Psalm Psalm 69 is, is being fulfilled here because Jesus was filled with zeal and the zeal in his heart consumed him for the Father's house. We're supposed to be zealous like that, not zealous for ourselves. Eve was tempted in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 verse 5 and Satan was trying to get her to fall into the same sin that he had fallen into and she said, he said to her, look, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you won't die. You'll be like God. That's what Satan tried to do to Eve and succeeded. He tried that same temptation years later in another wilderness garden setting with Jesus Christ. When he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, in one flash, Jesus saw it all. And Satan introduced it all and basically said, listen, I will give you this authority and their glory. That was the temptation. Jesus, of course, said, I will worship the Lord God alone. Spiritual warfare is the normal Christian life. 
And when we fall prey to it, when we fall prey to jealousy or selfish ambition, look at verse 16 again. There will be disorder in every vile practice. Every vile practice, every worldly thing can come into your life and into the church if you, if you become puffed up in pride. 1 Corinthians 3 warns against not putting a neophyte or a novice or a young person into eldership. Why? Because they can become puffed up with pride and they will ensure for themselves the same condemnation as fell the devil. You know, it really hurts to be a Christian where you're focused on the world and you're filled up with yourself and you're trying at the same time to live the Christian life. Isn't that a tough way to go? To be a double-minded person, a person with a divided heart, a divided focus. James 1 says that person is unstable in all his ways. It's what John Bunyan called Mr. Facing Both Ways. It's where you're going in two directions and your heart is being literally pulled apart by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you really want God and his glory. You know, there's no neutral in the Christian life. This text really pointed that out to me. You're either seeking heaven's wisdom from that repository, from that storehouse, or the world. One or the other. And it's, it could be that this morning that you are thinking and drinking the world's wisdom in, and you shift into a spiritual mindedness, even this morning where you say, no, I want to live for God and I want to drink the wisdom from his fountain that comes down. James 1 also says that God is a good gift-giving God who rains down good gifts as the father of lights. James 1, 16. Well, this three-front battle being described and defined as the world, the flesh, and the devil moves us into our section in verse 17 where we're going to describe heaven's wisdom, the wisdom that's from above. And what he presents here is seven descriptions of God's wisdom that comes down from above. And then in verse 18, one effect, one result from living out that wisdom. Seven descriptions here. Actually, in verse 15, he says, speaking of the wisdom that does not come down, he says, the wisdom from below is the wisdom that does that comes down that does not come down from above and then he reverses the word order in verse 17 and he says but the wisdom from above but in the original language he says but the above wisdom is this so there's a real word shifting emphasis here there's wisdom that's not from above and then there's the above wisdom and that's what we're going to describe here in verse 17 These are seven adjectives, seven descriptions of what it looks like. The first one is to be pure. That's the word holy or hagias. It's the idea that you have an unmixed, untainted wisdom that you're operating from. You're not confusing worldly wisdom or the world's thinking with biblical wisdom. It's saying to yourself, I am going to think like a holy person. I'm identifying with that which is holy. You know, as we break into these adjectives, I want to make a couple things clear, just right off the bat. Wisdom, as James describes it, is not a series of do's and don'ts. 
What James is describing here, like this first description, this first attribute for wisdom being holy, he's describing character, not what you do, but who you are. The key to the Christian life, in other words, is identifying with who God has made you to be more than trying to figure out what the next step is that you're supposed to do. Let me give you an example of it, of this. When I used to read the Proverbs, I would kind of struggle because as you begin to read Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 2 and you get into it, you might be looking for what you are supposed to do more than figuring out what Proverbs is really trying to say. Proverbs 2 says, if you seek it, wisdom like silver, and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. What is, what is this about? I used to read this and say, okay, you're seeking it. What am I supposed to do, though? And really, that's missing the point of this wisdom literature. What Proverbs is trying to say, as with all the wisdom literature of the Bible, is you need to be more concerned with who you are in your character over against what you are supposed to do. Because if you work on who you are before the Lord, then you'll be making the right decisions. Seek for wisdom as silver and gold. You need to want wisdom. And if you want wisdom and you're identifying with attributes of wisdom like these, it's going to change your life and make your decisions work out well. You see that? It's so easy to change Christianity into a works-based religion and say, just tell me what to do. Just give me one, two, three. And what James is saying here is, no, you need to drink from the fountain of God's heavenly wisdom by identifying with what it's like. Your heart needs to resonate with these descriptions And as it does, you'll be living out the Christian life. You'll see the fruit of it. The first attribute is to be pure. But before we describe this further, let me explain one more thing. These attributes, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, these could sound like non-fighting words. It's almost like, look, you've been talking about fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, and now we're sort of taking the edge off of things with these attributes. Well, these descriptions are what a fighter for God looks like. This is the weaponry. These are the attitudes of a Christian warrior who is on mission. And to live in this way is to be a fearful weapon in the hand of the Lord. It really is. This is the hard Christian road that he calls us to because it's hard to be pure and peaceable in the midst of warfare dynamic. But it's what God calls us to do. It's actually being like Jesus Christ. Not listening to the world, but being, look at verse 13, being one who shows good conduct in the meekness of wisdom. That's what he's saying. Being meek is being a warrior for God. All right, first of all, first description is to be holy, is to be holy. You know what this means? This means that this is wisdom that comes from God himself. This is the dominant term, and it comes down as heavenly wisdom. I believe, personally, that this is an indirect reference to the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's work in the believer's life. You can make the case that in the book of James, the Holy Spirit really isn't mentioned directly, but this is an indirect reference to the Holy Spirit of God. Remember James 1.5 says, He who lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who will give, you, give it to him generously and without reproach. 
God wants to make you wise. And I believe we become wise when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22, it talks about the fruit of the flesh, the lust and the drunkenness and disorderly nature of mankind without the Spirit of God. And then contrast that with the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing here. you got the world, the flesh, and the devil. In contrast to that mindset or that realm, you have wisdom that is holy. It's unstained by the world. The world is filled with information these days, isn't it? There's more information available than ever before because of the internet. There are more people that are published in pseudo ways online than ever before. People are writing perhaps more than ever before because of texting and emailing. It's no more sitting down and writing on a piece of paper and going through that routine. You're just constantly putting out your information and people do that all over the place. In fact, the number one products online and otherwise are interactive products like Wikipedia, like Facebook, right? Like Google, like eBay. These are interactive ways that people are communicating what they think or what they know or what they're buying or what they're selling all the time. There's more access to information than ever before. And it seems like our culture is dumber than ever before. I mean, you know, it's, it's just getting worse and worse, even with more information. And so these descriptions, especially seeking pure wisdom, is what we go for. It's where we're not drunk with the world's wine, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18. It's where we let the word of Christ richly indwell our thinking. When that happens, it will remind us of who we are. We're people who cling to holy wisdom. Secondly, peaceable. It's the second description. This means that you are a person who has a character that is non-combative. Now, you still might be a fighter. You still need to fight for truth. You need to fight for the glory of God. You need to be like the Apostle Paul who, in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, said, I am coming to town, church. I'm showing up, Corinth, and I'm going to tear down your wrong mindsets. And I want to do it in a gentle, humble way, so please receive me. And that's where you get the verse, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Paul wasn't talking about his own heart. He was talking about coming to town with a Bible sword and taking on wrong mindsets. So we're called to be warriors, but we're called to be peaceable. Not just peacekeepers, we're peacemakers. We're willing to go into battle with people, deal with awkward situations, deal with, I know you've never had awkward situations, right? Deal with situations where people might not like you or there's tension in the room and you go in with a meekness, with a humility, a commitment to unmixed worldly thinking. You have holy thinking. You're not mixed with the world. And then you're coming in to be peaceable. You have a heart for peace. You have a heart for healed relationships. You're not a combative person who's saying, you know what, I've got an opinion here and it's right out of my own heart. You know, it's right out of the devil's thinking, you know, and you lay that thing on the table and try to grind it through and make your point. That's not the wisdom from above. That's the world's wisdom. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Well, thirdly, we're called to be gentle. I like this word gentle. It's actually a word that could be translated kindly. Kindly. 
It's the idea of being long-suffering for people. It's where you look at someone, whether you like them or not, and you love them because you're able to get inside their skin and live their life from their perspective a little bit, and you give them grace for who they are. It's being gentle. That takes character. That takes spiritual power and strength to be gentle with somebody. And it's really being God-like. I've heard it said you're never more like God than when you have a spirit of forgiveness. And this kind of gentle graciousness that we find in God is something we experience every day. God could come down on us so much harder than he does. Even though he chastens the ones that he loves. Sometimes I wonder, you know, Lord, it really seems like you are taking a light road with me. You know, with the comparison of what I really believe I deserve. Even from a father's hand. He's gracious. And sometimes people say, well... God is more gracious in the New Testament than he is in the Old Testament. Look at all the judgments and things that he would do where he would slay entire nations or, or you know, allow for things to happen to non-believing nations or even the Jews themselves. Well, I think it's important for us to remember that the Old Testament spans hundreds of hundreds of years and generations and generations. And in between the, the judgment points where God would punish Israel and put them in Babylonian captivity and bring them back, in between those times were times of peace and blessing where God's grace was on display and he was withholding judgment that believing Israel and unbelieving Israel and Gentile nations deserved. Just think about our time period in the New Testament. From the New Testament time to now is a couple thousand years. But if you think about it, we've only been a country for a few hundred years. And we deserve so much judgment. But there's so much grace from the early church, New Testament times to right now. Where we deserve so much judgment, but God is withholding that from us, even as a country. It's a picture of grace. It's a picture of how God is gentle with us. One day he won't be so gentle. Revelation 19 says his son is coming back to slay his enemies with a two-edged sword. But for now we enjoy his grace and we need to be gracious because of it. Number four, God is open or we need to be open to reason. The wisdom from above, the above wisdom is open to reason. You know what that means? That means when somebody confronts you about your sin or your preferences or anything about you, you're willing to listen. You're a listener. Open to reason. Open to someone speaking into your life. Is this hard? Well, you've got to be a warrior for God. You've got to be fighting the good fight of faith to listen to your spouse, to listen to your child, to listen to your teenager. Or for you as a teenager to listen to your parent. Or you as a child to listen to your parent. It's being open. It's having an open posture where somebody can speak into your life. The opposite of that is what's produced from the world, flesh, and devil wisdom. Where verse 16, there will be disorder in every vile practice. There's disruption in the church or in families when people don't listen. When people don't listen to communication. Number five, being full of mercy and good fruits. This kind of goes together as one description. To be full of mercy means that you are moved with compassion and you're so moved that you're willing to do something about it. You see a need, you're moved by that need, and you actually respond and follow through with action. 
behind it. You put feet to the need. You, you help people who are in need physically, spiritually. You're, you're willing to do something about a need. It's not just being touched in a moment and forgetting about that person, but it's actually following through. It's where you see somebody who's in need, who's spiritually hurt, and you follow up and make a phone call. When I was preaching to the junior hires this week, I was moved with my own testimony, as I typically am am when I preach to junior high or high schoolers, because I became a Christian when I was 17. But I was raised in Christian home, Christian camps, Christian youth group. And I remember preachers coming to town and, and preaching to me and seed being sown and me responding or not. And the warfare dynamic that was going on in my own heart, would I respond or would I not? Well, I was telling Craig Schwartz there at the camp that I was so thankful for a lay worker in the youth department who was kind of a motley kind of guy, but he was willing to call me on a regular basis to follow up to see how I was doing and get to know me personally. That's church. This is, this is the warfare battle for people's hearts. And he was doing that. And his calls, obviously God intervened and saved me and woke me up. But his calls facilitated that finishing work in my life for me to be saved. That's being, he, he was moved with compassion for me to the point where he would call me. That's what it takes. That's, that's what it takes to build the kingdom of God. To find your identity with these descriptions. This is who I am. You know, I'm these things. I'm going to produce good fruit. Spiros Zodiades says regarding the good fruits that this is the expectancy of results. It's the idea that you're sowing seed, you're moved, you're doing something. And you expect God to bring a harvest. Good fruits. He repeats this term fruit in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness. That word harvest is the word fruit. The fruit of righteousness. It's the idea that there'll be a variety, a garden variety of fruit when we are living this kind of character appealing to wisdom from heaven. Next, number six, being impartial. Impartial. What does it mean to be impartial? That specifically means that you're non-judgmental. You're not choosing sides. You're not going towards one kind of person and denying another person. You're not biased to the rich over the poor as James 2 confronted, right? You're, you're impartial. And it means that you're straight up. It means that you're straightforward. You know what you believe. You're filled with convictions that are born in your heart by the Holy Spirit and you, you live it out. And then lastly, sincere. This word sincere could be translated authentic, and it reminds me a lot of the criticism that's on the church right now for being inauthentic, you know, being superficial. And a lot of criticism comes to the church by the way people do church. The people criticize programs. You know, you sing too much or sing too little. Or you should meet in home environments instead of coming together as a congregation. Or you should do this. Or you should dress this way. Dress up or dress down. There's just criticism all over the place. But really, the issue of authenticity comes down to one thing. It's being filled with God's wisdom. The, the authenticity comes from this book. You want to talk about being real? In the church, being real in the church is getting really close to God's word. God's holy, inspired book. That's what is real. 
uh, the only thing we can know to be truth or true is when we are evaluating things with the word of God, when we're looking through the lens of the word of God at life. That's how we can know things about ourselves. That's how we can know things about other people. That's how we can know how to live our life as a family. That's how we can know how to approach science, art, history. That's how we can know how to interpret our attitudes, our emotions. It's how we interpret everything. It's how we can interpret the world system around us, business, how we can interpret culture, how we can interpret, I already mentioned art, but all of the different artistic things that go on around us, what's good, what's bad, what's permissible, what's not. Our hearts are so deceitful and desperately wicked that unless we are filled with the wisdom of God, we are vulnerable to the world and left defenseless to our own lying hearts to say what's good or not. That's not authentic. When the church tries to just dress itself up by changing its style one way or the other, we'll make this style correction or this cosmetic correction or we'll do it this way or that way. We'll eat more, we'll eat less, we'll do this, we'll do that. That's all stylistic superficiality. What's real is you love the Lord and you know him by this book. That's it. That's it. Now, to live this character out, this wisdom in your life, to identify with this, is what one person said. A person who lived out this list would indeed be inspired by God and a binding force in the Christian community. These words, as you just read them, might seem kind of benign and soft, but really to live this kind of character out makes you a binding force in the church and specifically in someone else's life. If you live this out, if this is part of what God is doing in you because you're, you're saying this is who I am and who I long to be and I want to be part of this wisdom, then something's going to be happening to other people. Look at verse 18, the one effect. You have seven descriptions, one effect. The effect is a harvest of righteousness. You want to make an impact for God. You want to impact our church. You want to impact your community, your world, your city. You want to have a harvest of righteousness? You want there to be revival in Anchorage or at Anchorage Grace? This is our list. Be these things. Find out your spiritual gift. Get serving. Obey these, uh, these ideas and, and, and live it out in a spiritual way. There'll be a harvest of righteousness. There'll be a vine that's growing here that can't be stopped. You ever seen vine growth that's just you know, wrapping around a trellis and just just multiplying out where it's like, man, where did that come from? Well, there's just the right combination of sunlight, of watering, of fertilization, and, and it just life is happening. And that's the kind of life that should be described in our church that that is sowing of seeds and then reaping a harvest. Galatians 6 says that if you sow in the flesh, you'll reap corruption. If we're sowing fleshly ideas and thoughts, then the church will be vile, verse 16, and disorderly. But if you sow, as Galatians 6 says, in the spirit of God, you will reap eternal life. It it facilitates an atmospheric peace. Look at this. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace. You're making peace with other people. You're seeing people be made right with God with the gospel of peace, and it just multiplies itself all around. Well, how did James himself identify with these seven descriptions? Was he a peacemaker? Can I tell you a story from Acts 15? 
Acts 15, just as we close, he was uh, at the Jerusalem Council. And this is an amazing moment in the early church because, as you'll remember in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas were heavily on mission. They were launched from the church at Jerusalem, which is the mothership church. And they were sent out to the Gentile regions of Samaria and other places. The early church, as you know, was kind of started by a band of brothers, 11 with Jesus, and then they elected a a new apostle, Matthias, and then they met as families in the upper room. The Spirit of God came, and then it multiplied out 3,000 people, then 5,000 people, and then probably about 20,000, 25,000 people. And, And then they began to create a missions movement and church planning movement from Jerusalem, where the church began to multiply and whole cities were being won to Christ. This is sort of the greatest exponential revival documented for us in history in the book of Acts. Well, there was sort of an enemy attack on this revival from inside the church. And in Acts 15, it says that Paul and Barnabas were fighting for the truth. Look at verse 2. It says, Paul and Barnabas had, had no small dissension and debate with them. The them were people in the church who were who were Judaizers and they were demanding that these Gentiles who were coming to faith in Christ, these thousands of people that were being multiplied, that they needed to be under the bondage and yoke of the law. And these Judaizers were saying, look, you know, if they want to be in and part of our club, then they need to be circumcised. I mean, they got to do that or we can't accept them. And so now, you know, this is a fight worth fighting for because we're fighting for the centerpiece of the gospel that a person is saved by grace through faith alone. And so Paul and Barnabas came back to the, to the mothership in Jerusalem to have it out. And Peter was there. Look at verse 7. It says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So the Gentiles are part of this situation. And then in verse 11, he nails, Peter nails down the grace through faith alone gospel. He's fighting for truth. But we believe that we will be saved Through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, just as the Gentiles will. It's all by grace. So don't add some yoke of slavery in this moment. Don't don't sully the gospel or confuse the church. And so then in verse 13, James speaks up. And James is one of the early leaders in the church. He was the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the one that wrote the book of James that we've been studying. And in verse 13, it says, after they finished speaking, James replied, said, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related, this is Peter he's talking about, related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And then James goes on to quote from the book of Amos and the book of Isaiah and the book of Daniel. And he does this to build a picture from the Old Testament that the Gentiles were going to be part of the plan all along. But then he wraps it up in verse 19. And he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. James was a peacemaker. He fought for truth, but he did it in a gentle way using scripture and saying, let's not trouble the Gentiles. He lived it out. And that's our call. That's our commission to live out the gospel.
All right, here's a few take-home points, a few points of application. Let me just give you a little bit of an infomercial about these. The take-home points are on a piece of paper that you can grab before the sermon, if you so choose. We typically have them at the table or at the office. Also, I would encourage you to, and my outline is on that as well, so you can have that and watch whether I follow it or not. But anyway, I also want you to have the take-home points so you can take them home. It's the idea. And you can reread them and think about the sermon during the week, what you learned and how it should be affecting your life. Number one, having only two sources for wisdom clarifies that there is no neutral in the Christian life. Do you remember when I mentioned that? You're either leaning on God's wisdom or the world's wisdom. There's no middle ground wisdom. You're one way or the other. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil or the word. Number two, one key way for relying on God's wisdom instead of the world's wisdom is grasping your identity in Christ. It's a key point that I was trying to make. Wisdom is character. Wisdom is who you need to be. And you need to be this because God made you to be this way as a believer. Remember who you are. Resonate with these descriptions of wisdom and live them out. Number three. Another key for relying on God's wisdom instead of the world's wisdom is to ask God to help you. You say, I'm struggling. I'm not living out this character. Well, Have you asked God to help you to live this out yet? Because the Heavenly Father that I know from James 1.5, He's generously wanting to give you wisdom and He wants you to walk in His Holy Spirit. Probably the reason why He's been so gracious to you and so gentle with you over the years is to give you the opportunity to woo you towards this kind of wisdom. Matthew 7, 11, I cite, you know, you who are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Of course, God will give us wisdom to live it out. Number four, are you willing to fight according to God's wisdom? Not fight in the flesh, not put up your dukes in the flesh, but fight this way in a peacemaking, gentle, impartial, loving, compassionate holy way. Fight for peace with a resolve never to compromise truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, as we approach the Lord's table, we pray, God, that you would, uh, Lord, let us be relying upon your gospel of peace. I would invite all of us now to take a moment to Examine yourself, examine your life, your heart, your relationship to your family members, your relationship to this family, this body, and other Christians. We observe a open communion to all believers.